one of the things uh, that we make our children do in my household that they absolutely hate is we make them, and just stop and imagine this for a second, we make our children pick up their toys. I know, it's brutal, it's brutal, it's terrible. Also in my household, one of the chores that Luke has is he has to take the dishes, the silverware specifically, from the dishwasher and sort them out and put them back in the little tray in the counter, you know, where you put the forks here, the knives here, and so on and so forth. Um, And he hates it, okay? He talks about sorting silverware like he's digging ditches in Vietnam or something, right? I mean, it's just brutal. Also, at the end of the day, we force our children to take baths. We also force our children to go to bed even when they look at us and insist that they are not tired. In fact, in the history of parenthood, I don't know that any, that argument has ever worked with a parent, right? Has any kid ever said, I'm not tired? And the parent said, oh, okay, then you don't have to go to bed tonight, right? Has that ever worked? No. Okay, also in my household, we punish our children. One of the things that they do, just because they're brothers and there's no reason for it, is they just hit each other randomly. Okay, for no reason whatsoever. One of them will be walking by the other one. It doesn't matter which one because they both do it. And they'll just be walking by their brother and just go whack. Okay, like why did you do that? I don't know. Okay. We punish our children. When they talk back to us, they face consequences. When they pitch fits, they face consequences. And here's my question this morning. Hey, why do we both teach our kids discipline and discipline our kids? Okay, I made this multiple choice for you just so you could, you could work on this quiz. All right, is it A, because Rachel and I are mean? That's what Sam says. Yeah, okay. Is it B, because we just enjoy killing their fun? Okay, we don't want them to have any fun. Is it C, because we're just trying to make our lives easier? Okay, which, by the way, if it was C, we wouldn't have ever had the kids, right? (laughs) Or is it D, because we love them and it's for their own good? That was kind of rhetorical, but that's okay. I I appreciate you helping out. All right, there might be a little bit of A and C in that that's true. But the primary reason that we discipline our children is because we love our kids. All right, our passage in Scripture today says that because God loves us as our Father and we are His children, because He wants us to be trained in discipline, we should expect, we should even embrace God's discipline. All right, but before we get to our passage this morning, I want to remind you of the steps of discipleship that we've talked about so far in our study of the book of Hebrews. Uh, Remember that the entire point of this letter is that the author of this book is trying to keep a group of Christians from going into decline. Okay, several weeks ago I showed the growth curve, right? The church growth curve. You remember seeing that on the, on the screen where we talked about you start off in your faith and you're all excited and everything's great and we love this and everything's good and we're going on this upward trajectory. Eventually churches and individual Christians, we kind of plateau. We sort of coast. We start thinking everything's fine. I've kind of arrived. And then if we're not careful, what happens is we start to decline. Hey, the primary reason for this book is to help keep us from declining, to stay on this path of spiritual growth, to become stronger disciples of Jesus Christ. 
Okay, so several things we've talked about so far. The first step of discipleship is we have to listen to God, right? Discipleship always starts by hearing God's voice, following the words that God has given to us. Okay, secondly, he tells us beware of drifting. Okay, it's very easy for you to look up one day, find yourself in a spiritual place you never thought you were going to go, okay, because we just drift away in our faith if we're not intentional. Okay, third thing he says is know the rewards of faith. Okay, there is a promised land that we are going to. There are things that God has given to us. There's great rewards in keeping our faith. Okay, the next thing, what we've been talking about the last several weeks, is that we experience a better covenant. Okay, this is all the middle section of Hebrews. We spent several weeks talking about how Jesus is a better high priest. He serves at a better temple. He is a, the mediator of a better covenant with a better sacrifice. Everything about Jesus is better. Okay, now we get to step five, which is that we must endure suffering. If we want to claim to be disciples of Jesus, we must endure suffering. Right, we ended last week looking at the middle part of the book of Hebrews, talking about this better covenant we have because of Jesus. Okay, and that leads us right into the most famous section in all of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, which we call the Faith Hall of Fame. Okay, and he tells us all these examples from the Bible. He says, by faith, Noah built an ark. By faith, Abraham moved to a strange land. By faith, Joseph. By faith, Moses. By faith, the prophets were killed and beaten and tortured. Okay, for 40 verses, the author of Hebrews gives us example after example about people who lived these amazing lives of faith. Right? And then we ask ourselves, okay, what's the point? What is he highlighting here? Why do we do this? Right? And I think he's saying, okay, all of these heroes endured much worse than you have, and they kept their faith. Right? And I think the implied question with 40 verses of chapter 11 is, okay, so how much faith do you have? Right? Then we turn the page. We go to chapter 12, and the first several verses of Hebrews chapter 12 say, okay, Jesus went through the cross for you. This is much worse than anything you or I will ever face in our lives. So, again, here's the question, how much faith do you have? Okay, then very explicitly, starting in verse 4, he turns to us, he turns to his readers, and he addresses us directly saying, okay, what kind of faith do you have? How will you endure suffering? Will we endure it like the people in this faith hall of fame? Will we endure suffering like Jesus, or are you going to shrink away from it and abandon your faith? Okay, notice Hebrews 12, starting in verse 4. He says, in your struggle against sin... You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, 
and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Alright, the author of Hebrews is actually mixing two different metaphors at this point in the text. He's giving us two different images, both of which are designed to teach us how we can better view our own sufferings. Okay, so two images. If you're taking notes, write these down. Uh, The first image he gives us is a parenting image. He says, your suffering is God disciplining you as a parent. Okay, discipline is for your good. It's not vindictive, it's not unfair, it's not damaging. Again, the reason I discipline my kids is because I love them. So, if God is a perfect father, how much more is he going to give you and me perfect discipline? Sometimes our suffering is evidence that God loves you. Okay, you ever try to pull the line with your kids before you're about to get on to them? This is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. Okay. I remember my father telling me that once, and I think, if I remember this correctly, that I said to him, okay, Dad, if this is going to hurt you worse than me, I will swap with you, right? Let me have the paddle, we'll do it the other way, and then I can feel the worst pain. It didn't work out real well for me. C.S. Lewis very famously said, and I think he's absolutely right, he said, God whispers to us in our pleasure speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Right now, listen to me closely because this is an important point. If you hear me only say one thing this morning, let it be this next set of what I'm about to tell you. Right, I am not saying this morning that every bad thing that happens in your life is God disciplining you. I do not believe that is what this text teaches. I don't believe that's what Scripture teaches at all. Okay, if that was true, it would lead to the very untenable position that I have to find a reason for everything bad that happens in my life. Right? That every sickness, every rainy day, every financial struggle, every bad golf shot, right, is somehow God disciplining me, and I've got to find out what that is. No, I think this text flows right out of chapter 11, right out of those first few verses of chapter 12. It is specifically speaking to the sufferings that we endure because of our faith. All right, so here's your your 60-second overview of some of the kinds of suffering talked about in Scripture, because different texts in Scripture deal with this differently, and we get off track when we take any one thing that the Bible says and say, this is the whole Word of God on a subject, okay? We have to have a bigger perspective. All right. Um, In several books of the Bible, most notably Deuteronomy, several books like that, God teaches us that sometimes we suffer because we're not doing things God's way. 
Okay? In other words, if I sin, there's always a consequence to that sin. Right? If I go peeling off out of here at 85 miles an hour and a cop pulls me over, he's going to say, you know why I pulled you over? I'll say, yeah, because I was speeding. Right? And so the pain of paying that ticket is directly a result of a law that I broke. Right? A lot of times in my life I have suffered and I can point back to it and say, well, I suffered because I really messed this up right here. Right? You've all got examples in your life of times when you've endured pain because you messed something up? Okay. That's what Deuteronomy teaches. Specifically, Deuteronomy goes into if you worship other gods, it's not going to go well for you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's going to work out great. All right? Then we get to another kind of suffering, the kind that we talk about in a book like Job, okay, among some other places. Job teaches us, and we talked about this for several weeks, a few years back, Hey, sometimes we suffer because we live in a broken world, and there's not a good satisfying explanation. Okay, at the end of the book of Job, God never shows up and says, okay, Job, let me explain to you why you're suffering. No, God shows up and says, you're not God. Sometimes suffering happens. I am God, and I'll deal with it. Okay? When your loved one gets sick, when a tornado levels your house, can you point back to some specific sin and say, well, this is why I'm suffering? No. Sometimes we suffer just because we live in a broken world and bad stuff happens. Until Jesus comes back and redeems all of creation, part of living in this world means we will experience some suffering just because creation is broken. Fair enough? All right. Hebrews teaches a different kind of suffering. Okay, sometimes we suffer because the world doesn't always like God followers and they will persecute you for it. Okay, think of all the prophets in the Old Testament. Did they get to retire fat and happy? No. Why? Because they were faithfully proclaiming the word of God and a lot of people didn't want to hear it. Okay, think about the 12 apostles of Jesus. Did they get to retire to a country club somewhere? No. Why? Because they were faithfully proclaiming the word of God to a world that didn't always want to hear it. Okay? Several places in Scripture, not just Hebrews, tells us that if we are really following Jesus, some people in the world will actively oppose us for it. Hebrews is reminding us of this and asking us, are you willing to take up your cross, face suffering that you know is coming, and follow Jesus? Is following Jesus worth it to you to put up with some suffering in this world for nothing more, nothing you ever did wrong, but suffering just because you're following Jesus Christ? That's the question. If God is our loving Father, He will use our sufferings as a way of disciplining us, as a way of molding us into being better people, just like I try to make my sons better men by disciplining them. Fair enough? All right, that's number one. We start with a parenting image, but then you notice the last couple of verses of this section, chapter 12, he switches to an athletic image, okay? Your suffering is God training you just like an athlete is trained, okay? Those last couple of verses, it talks about strengthening your feeble arms and weak knees. Okay, it's athletic imagery. All right, uh, how many of you used to be hardcore athletes like me? I haven't said anything funny yet. I don't know why. 
did you see me try to kick the football at the College Football Hall of Fame on Facebook? I had the distance. I just didn't, didn't quite hit the uprights. That's all right. All right. Um, I, I didn't do a whole lot of athletic endeavors as a kid, but one thing I did do is I played Little League Baseball. Um, one of the things Coach would always do is he would make us run and run and run, run around the field. Okay, keep running, keep running, keep running. Okay, he'd make us swing a bat a thousand times. He'd make us field a thousand ground balls. He'd make us throw a ball a thousand times. Okay, I remember after a good practice being sore the next day. It hurt. Okay, why put up with that kind of pain? Why did coach make a dozen 13-year-olds suffer like that? Okay, because it makes you stronger. It makes you a better player. Right, it's an overused line, but it's absolutely true. No pain, what? No gain, okay? And this is applicable to lots of things, not just sports. Okay, for instance, I want to be a well-read person, okay? But I don't want to read all those books, right? I want to be in better shape, but I don't want to exercise regularly, okay? I want to eat better, but I don't want to cut back on red meat or salt or sugar or any of those good things that I like. Okay? I have a love-hate relationship with pizza that's mostly love, right? I want to invest more money in retirement, but I don't want to cut my spending anywhere. Okay? There are many areas of life where I say that I want something, something I know would be a good thing for me, but I'm not willing to endure any pain to get there. If I'm not willing to endure any pain, then what's going to happen to those goals? You'll never achieve them. Okay, so here's the big question this morning, and this is the only question that really matters. Okay, and that is, I say I want to be like Jesus. Am I willing to endure pain to get there? Am I willing to pray like Jesus prayed? Am I willing to love unlovable people around me like he did? Am I willing to sit at the lowest place? And take the servant's role? Am I willing to devote myself fully to the Word of God? Am I willing to preach the kingdom of God to everyone around me, knowing that because of it, most people will reject it and reject me? Am I willing to take up my cross and follow Jesus? I think at the end of the day, that's the only question that matters. Okay, so here's where I'm at, and here's part of why I think most of us plateau too early in our spiritual walk. Okay, again, remember the spiritual life cycle, right? We start off all excited, we end up plateauing, and then we slowly decline if we're not intentional about it. Here's the reason I think most of us plateau too soon, okay, and it's because being committed with your time and energy to the kingdom of God means you cannot have it fully committed elsewhere. Which sounds really simple and really self-explanatory, but we live as if this isn't true. Okay, we constantly try to live our lives as if we can do everything all at once, make no sacrifices anywhere, and still get to where we want to go. Okay, so there's nothing wrong with being passionate about some stuff. There's nothing wrong with being passionate about sports or your job or even good things like spending time with your family or anything else you want to do. But you cannot be fully committed to any of those things because your first commitment has always got to be to the kingdom of God. Is that fair? 
All right, here's my final question, then we can be done. And that is, what does it look like to suffer for your faith today? Okay, we're not the prophets in the Old Testament. No one's lining up to throw stones at us for following Jesus. What does it look like for us to suffer for our faith today? You know, I remember when I was in high school, um, I can remember exactly where I was sitting in the lunchroom at my high school and who all was sitting at the table around me being ridiculed for believing that God created the world. Okay? Don't you know we don't need God anymore, right? Don't you know we have science that can explain everything? Okay? And the world was formed over billions of years. God didn't have anything to do with it. I remember it hurt. Okay? You know, I remember an older gentleman at the church we went to in Oklahoma uh, who lost his business because he wouldn't back down from his Christianity. That man had a wife and three children. He didn't know how he was going to support them, and he had a choice to make. Am I going to keep this job and be able to provide for my family, or am I going to have to step out in faith, lose this job, and not really know what comes next for my wife and kids? He stood up for his Christianity. God gave him another job. Okay, I had a friend who was fired. Um, when he was working for a company and he was doing cashier stuff and he had a coupon and everyone was bringing him and it was supposed to give them like 14% off of the item they were buying. And he did the math and figured out we're only giving people like 11% off of what we're buying. He told his manager about it and his manager said, yeah, but nobody else can do that math, so don't worry about it. Okay? And he said, I can't go along with that dishonesty. He said, well, then there's the door. He had a choice to make. He walked out. Okay, we're not likely in our world to face the same kinds of persecutions that Christians face in the Middle East right now, okay, where you literally can be killed for your faith. Okay, I don't want to do that. I can't imagine having to do that. Okay, but in some ways, I honestly think it's harder to fully commit to Jesus in our culture because we have a pressure to keep a surface-level commitment to Jesus. Okay? Our culture and the world around us and Satan himself would love for you and I to have a surface level commitment to Jesus that brings us here for an hour a week but then doesn't actually change anything in our lives. Okay? Satan is more than okay with you saying, yeah, Jesus is Lord, but then living just like everyone else and not letting it impact any of your relationships and keeping the news about the kingdom of God to yourself. He's fine with that. Hebrews insists, however, that that's not real Christianity. All right, one final verse. We'll close with this. This is chapter 13, uh, starting in verse 11. He says, The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Hebrews is telling us if you really want to follow Jesus, it doesn't come where everybody else is hanging out. Okay, it doesn't come where all the stuff is happening. If you really want to follow Jesus, it involves going outside the camp. It involves going outside the city. It, goes, it involves bearing the kinds of disgrace he bore being outside those circles of power, chasing different things than the world around us chases. If we're really going to be disciples of Jesus Christ, it means we're going to have to learn to endure some suffering. All right, at this point in our service, we're going to sing a few verses of an imitation song. 
During the singing of this song, I will be down front. One of our shepherds will be down front. Uh, During the song, it's a time for us as a church to be here for you. We would love to pray with you or study God's word with you about anything that's going on in your life. Um, Anything that you are struggling with, we would love to sit down and talk with you about it. This is our time as a church to show you the love of Jesus. And before we sing that song, I'd like to close this with a word of blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and give you peace. Let's stand and sing.